In Mark 9, God the Father says this, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And so, our Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would help us to listen to your Son, the Lord Jesus. Pray you'd help us to listen carefully, humbly, and gladly to his words. We pray particularly for anyone listening in who wouldn't call Jesus King at the moment. We pray that you might open their eyes to see him and to see the implications of refusing him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're thinking this morning about what happens when Jesus ruffles feathers, when Jesus upsets people, when people get into an argument with Jesus, when when Jesus shows his authority and people don't like it. You can see that's the issue. If you, if you look at the passage, the very first verse, verse 27, he's, he's approached by the kind of massed ranks of the Jewish authorities, the temple authorities. And verse 28, what do they say? Well, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, hey, Jesus, what gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to call the shots around here? Now, if you were here last week, you'll understand why they were asking that. Two days before this moment, Jesus had entered Jerusalem and kind of been hailed as God's king. A day before this conversation, Jesus had turned everything upside down in the temple, quite literally. I mean, imagine the police kind of breaking up a huge illegal party on Portobello Beach, kind of barbecues and tables are flying everywhere. That's the kind of commotion that Jesus has just caused the day before, overturning tables full of money, driving out um, what the corrupted temple had become, this kind of exploitative, money-grabbing opportunity in the very place where God had designed to connect people with God. And today, we're seeing the pushback, the fight back from the temple authorities, the counterattack. What gives you the right to call the shots around here? Now, before we get to Jesus' answer to their question, I want to point out how relevant this is to every human being. See, every single one of us will face this question. This question will occur to us at some point. Jesus, what gives you the right to turn my life upside down, to call the shots? to command me, for example, to repent, to to turn, to turn from my natural self-centeredness to sacrificial service, to turn from my attempts to self-justify and say I'm fine to dependence on Jesus and his death. Jesus, what gives you the right to, to call the shots morally, whether it's marriage, divorce, sex, gender? What gives you the right to say that your death is the only way to get right to God, that that prayers in your name are the prayers that God actually listens to? By what authority do you do this? Everyone faces the question. And so if if you are one of those people who've just kind of tuned into this live stream out of curiosity, whether invited by a friend or a family member, or looking for answers maybe in, in a fragile world, Maybe you just clicked the wrong YouTube link and you're wondering what's going on. Well, however you got here, we're glad you're here, really glad you're listening in. But also I need to issue a kind of health warning because Christianity, it can never remain a spectator sport. 
not permanently. Jesus ultimately didn't come just as a teacher or an entertainer or an educator. He came as a king, calling us to turn around, to get off the throne of our lives, to give him the steering wheel. And that's what a Christian is, someone who has recognized Jesus has more right, more ability, more love to rule my life better than me. So it's a question for everyone. Do you respond to the king or reject him? There isn't actually a middle option. He doesn't give us one. And these temple authorities are definitely choosing to reject. Their question in verse 27, it's not like a sincere inquiry. It's a hostile counterattack. They've already decided they want rid of him. What gives you the right? We've kind of been building up to this clash through Mark's gospel. Chapters 1 to 8, we've seen more and more evidence that Jesus really is God's king. All of God's authority on earth over nature, sickness, sin, death, evil. Jesus is the indisputable king. And then in chapters 8 to 10, he's been warning that when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be rejected. Despite being a loving king, a sacrificial king, a servant king, nevertheless, he'd be rejected. And in fact, chapter 8, verse 31, he predicted he'd be rejected by precisely this trio. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And so here we are. They begin their counterattack on his authority. But here's the thing. Even though he knows where they're coming from, he still engages with them. He does one of his kind of characteristically brilliant bits of, of wisdom under cross-examination. Verse 29, I'll, he poses them a question. I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. It's an absolutely brilliant response because it's perfectly fair. It's a fair proposal, one answer each, one question each. But it's also a question they can't answer or they won't answer because they don't actually want to follow the evidence of John the Baptist. He's exposing their insincerity. He's trapping them between the truth and their people-fearing hypocrisy because the people knew that John the Baptist was a real prophet. Just look at their dilemma, verse 31. They discussed it with one another, saying, ah, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Because they were afraid of the people, because all the people held that John was really a prophet. And so they fold. They answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Round one, Jesus won. The combined ranks of the temple and Jerusalem's ruling elite, zero. But actually, Jesus isn't just scoring points here. This isn't like PMQs or FMQs. It's not actually a popularity contest, kind of playing for the cameras. See, Jesus is actually pointing them to the answer of their question. John's baptism was real evidence of his authority, a real answer if they were just willing to engage and think back. Just think about it. Um, 
It's a long time ago, but Mark's gospel began with John the Baptist. Just turn back all the way to chapter 1 in Mark with me. Chapter 1, where, where Mark started, was John the Baptist's baptism. And if you look at verse 7, this is John's testimony to Jesus. After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Clearly, John the Baptist, a prophet sent from heaven, thought that Jesus had serious authority. And he was right. Just look on to verses 10 and 11. What happened when John actually baptized Jesus? When Jesus came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And listen to this. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. There's the answer to Jesus' authority. You are my beloved son, says God the Father from heaven. See, God already made it very clear, literally loud and clear. And actually everything since that moment has been backing up the claim. What authority does Jesus have to do all this? Well, he is actually the son of God. That is both the chosen king the son from Psalm 2, from David's line, and God the Son, actually God in person on the earth, the eternal creator made flesh, able to calm the seas with a word, able to walk across the waters, able to make bread for 5,000 with a packed lunch, able to directly forgive sins. There's been plenty of evidence building up to an amazing moment, chapter 9, where Jesus at the transfiguration, glows with blazing white glory. A cloud comes from heaven and a voice comes again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What gives Jesus the right? Well, he's the son, the beloved son. And it's striking that all of that evidence was accessible to these authorities. They could have gone and seen. They, they, they did see some of it. They could have asked. But actually, they weren't willing to look at the evidence, weren't willing to look where Jesus pointed them. And that's often true, even today. When people refuse to accept Jesus' authority, it's not because there is no evidence, objectively. It's not even because the evidence is unclear as to where it points is usually because there's, not, there's, there's a refusal to seriously engage with it, to, to actually look at the evidence. It's one of the reasons we're hoping that Read Mark um, material or the Word one-to-one material with John's Gospel will actually encourage people to, to just look and read the evidence God has given us. And my experience in pastoral ministry is there's usually a moment when people stop being interested in the evidence it's when Jesus' authority starts to impinge on me. When it would require me to get off the throne, suddenly I have a significant vested interest in skewing the results. I've definitely seen that with inquiries to Christian things. Sometimes there's real excitement to hear what Jesus teaches. It's so full of wisdom. Real, real amazement to, to see the eyewitnesses describe what he did. And then real resistance when the call of the king actually comes. And suddenly, 
a myriad of questions, all sorts of intellectual counterattacks to evade the moral call, the personal call. And let me just say, if that is you, we, we love people asking questions, but when Jesus ruffles feathers, don't just close your eyes to the answers. And Jesus will always ruffle feathers at some point. If he really is God, if he really is God's king on earth, of course he'll say some things that disagree with every one of us, with every culture on the planet. He's the king, not us. He's the king, not our backgrounds or our contemporary culture or our cherished traditions. If we sometimes find ourselves reading the Bible, it happened to me actually yesterday morning, and the thought comes in my mind, whoa, I'm surprised by that. That's, that's not really the kind of God I want to believe in. Well, that's just a way of saying I'd prefer to believe in an idol, a handcrafted, man-made, um, personally customized God, just a big version of me. But the thing about meeting the real God is that we discover he doesn't always agree with us because he's God, not me. At which point there's a straight choice. Do we submit to the king, even when he's ruffling feathers? Or do we question his authority and refuse to look at the evidence for it? Happens to Christians as well. I guess especially over the summer, this is a good, a good warning for us. Will we keep listening to the Lord Jesus in his words? And will we keep choosing to listen to teaching that is Bible-centered and Jesus-submitting? Because online you can find all sorts of stuff. You can find lots of things that sound great, look great, and feel great, but just are never willing to place the demands that Jesus would, to speak with the clarity that Jesus would. That's our first point. Hey, Jesus, what gives you the rights? But it's time to move to our second point, and we'll spend um, uh, a fair amount of time on this second point. This is Jesus kind of going on the offensive. It's Jesus turning the tables on them, and he tells them uh, a parable. It's still part of the same conversation. You can see from chapter 12, verse 12, the leaders know that he's telling this parable against them. They're the prime targets still. And I have to say, just as we get into this, especially if your, your attention's fading or you're wondering about going and putting a drink on or whatever, um, zone back in, because actually of all the parables Jesus teaches, and there are some amazing ones, I personally think this is the most extraordinary one by the time you get to the end. From about halfway through, Jesus drops a series of bombshells, real kind of warnings, revelations to these leaders. So I've called this second point, hey leaders, I know what's really going on here. Jesus knows what's really going on here. Let's pick up the story. It's the story, chapter 12, verse 1, of a well-designed vineyard. Or in other words, it's nothing like our little garden at the moment at home. Um, to try and maintain sanity and to keep Grace entertained, we've been trying to grow some uh, tomatoes over lockdown. Uh, but the combination of no garden center access and my own kind of ineptitude at all things green it's fair to say the setup leaves a lot to be desired. So we, we had seed, and that was basically it. No grow bags, no gardener's twine, no tomato supports, no liquid fertilizer. I've just read about those things. I don't really know what they are. Instead, it was whatever container I could find, kind of yogurt pot, window box, stuffed with last year's dirt, and there's a strange kind of 
um, hodgepodge of, of string and poles and tying things to sheds to try and hold the tomatoes up. But in verse 1, that's not the kind of vineyard that Jesus describes. This one was properly set up. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, went into another country. It's properly set up. Now we know from Isaiah 5, this is a familiar story so far. We know he's talking about God's people, particularly God's people situated in Jerusalem, I think. Really well set up. City walls, temple, uh, his vine, God's people, are, are kind of situated well in Jerusalem. And so far, the leaders would be saying, oh, yeah, 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 we know this story, Isaiah 5. The vine didn't produce the fruit God wanted. But notice Jesus' story moves somewhere different. He introduces a new character to the story. These tenants, that is, the leaders of Jerusalem, the temple authorities, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, the people he's talking to. So end of verse 1, the vineyard owner leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, and just listen to the focus on the tenants, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. We've just moved, in daytime TV terms, from Gardener's World to landlord nightmares. The point is clear what he's referring to. Jesus is recounting the long history of God sending his servants, the prophets, to his people and particularly the leaders of his people. Think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi, prophets to whom they would not listen, prophets who ruffled feathers, prophets who faced that question, who gives you the right? to tell us what to do, to tell us we're wrong, to tell us to turn around. Prophets who were either ignored or silenced by execution. Up to verse 5, the story is already outrageous. How dare these tenants living on borrowed land uh, with a leased vineyard, with an agreed uh, arrangement to, to provide fruit, how dare they ignore the owner and treat his messengers so shamefully? But in verse 6, the tragedy deepens. And actually, Jesus' point gets sharper and sharper about the present-day reality. Look, leaders, I know what's really going on here. Just zone in with me. Verse 6, the vineyard owner had still one other, a beloved son. Recognize that phrase? It was the title from John's baptism chapter 1, the title at the Transfiguration, chapter 9. We're in no doubt here who Jesus is talking about. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Those two verses are absolutely extraordinary. They're they're shocking. I mean, they're shocking just in the story on its own terms, but they're even more shocking when you realize what Jesus is referring to. They're full of bombshells. 
Firstly, shocking bombshell number one, notice in verse 7, the tenants realize who they're dealing with. They say, this is the heir. Jesus is saying to these leaders, I know that you know who I am. You know you're dealing with the son. That means their plan to get rid of him is not some case of mistaken identity. They didn't honestly think he's a false prophet. It's a deliberate refusal to accept the rightful authority of God's king. It's an attempted coup, an insurrection, a rejection of the Psalm 2 king. Let's read on. Come, verse 7, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus looks these leaders in the eye and says, I know what's going on. I know what you're planning in secret. You're seeking a way to kill them. And I even know why you're doing it. Your position is threatened by me. You'd prefer to sit on the throne yourself. You want all of God's blessings and none of God's rule. You want God's world, but not God's king. It's precisely because I'm the son that you want to get rid of me. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's hard to overestimate the, the drama, the, the tension of the moment. I mean, I'm sure you could have hear, heard a pin drop as Jesus warns his deadly enemies that he knows exactly what they're secretly planning and he knows why. But actually, he's not even finished yet. The bombshells are going to keep coming because he's not about scoring points. He is warning them. Just like in the first question, he was warning them to just look at the evidence again. Wake up. Realize who you're dealing with. Don't pick a fight that you cannot, will not win. And so, verse 9, he poses them a question. They'd asked him, what gives you the right to turn the temple upside down, to, to move in here like you own the place? And now the son, the heir, the one who does own the place, asks them, what do you think is going to happen? What gives you the right to kill the son? Honestly, what do you expect is going to happen when you kill the, the beloved son, what do you think the real owner is going to do? In some ways, one of the puzzling things about the parable, the story, is just how could the tenants be so naive to think they'd actually get away with the plan? Perhaps you read it and thought, how could the vineyard owner be so naive? to keep trying to send prophets when they clearly weren't going to listen, and then to think, perhaps naively, that the beloved son would fare any better. Actually, that's not naivety. That's patience. That is a landlord who is gracious, loving, slow to anger, giving his tenants every possible chance to come to their senses to stop their rebellion before eviction falls. But when in response they assassinate his beloved son in an attempt to, to seize permanent control of the vineyard, I mean, that really is naive. To think that the owner will just roll over and say, oh, well, you win some, you lose some. 
You see, when, when people back then, or still us today, when people reject Jesus, God's beloved Son, God the Father is not ambivalent to that, not indifferent to that. He's not unmoved. I think we sometimes mistake his patience for indifference. But when people, and we all do it naturally, refuse God's chosen king because I'd rather be king myself, I'd rather make myself the king of the universe, well, make no mistake, he does respond in the end. No one gets away with rejecting the son. And this is our third point. You will not get away with it, ultimately. Let me read from verse 9. Jesus asked them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's stark, isn't it? The tension cranks up yet another notch. Not just that Jesus has looked them in the eye and said, you know who I am. Not just he said, I know what you're planning. He now says, if you do that, God will destroy you. Reject me and he will reject you. You will not ultimately get away with this. If they had a thought that they'd be able to move on from the Jesus incident as if nothing had happened, as if God would still be for them, as if they could carry on because they still had the temple and the city and the land, no, that's absurd, that, that's naive. God would come and destroy them. And in Mark 13, when we get there, Jesus will predict this really specifically in the first couple of verses as he, as he predicts that the temple will be entirely destroyed, which it was in AD 70 when the Romans sacked the city. No one can reject Jesus and get away with it ultimately. And because he's loving and kind, he warns us directly. Even his deadly enemies who don't want to listen, he tells them. In fact, he even, because they're Old Testament religious scriptural experts, he even gives them a bit more evidence, not just the testimony of John the Baptist, the last prophet, but the testimony of Psalm 118, which makes this point about Jesus being the cornerstone, the centerpiece of all God's doing. So verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, in that psalm, and actually in loads of the psalms, countless times across the Old Testament, from Samuel to Isaiah, God makes it very clear that his chosen king, the future Messiah, would come to Jerusalem and be rejected. But nevertheless, despite his rejection, despite his suffering, despite even his death, he would prove to be the cornerstone, the key foundation, the centerpiece around which God builds his new temple, his eternal kingdom, his, his church, the true Israel, with Jews and Gentiles being built around the cornerstone of Jesus. And when you think about the implications of what Jesus is saying, we actually have one final bombshell. Jesus is saying, even after you've killed me, you will not be rid of me. Did you notice that? 
Verse 8, they will kill him. But then the rejected stone will become the cornerstone. He's warning them of his resurrection. It's actually what he said in chapter 8, verse 31, when he was briefing his disciples about this. The Son of Man will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that's this trio, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is why you can't get rid of Jesus, even if you want to. He's God's chosen king. He was raised from the dead. He will return to call us to account. And as he's been teaching in Mark 10, only his death provides the ransom we need, pays the price for our rejecting of God's authority in our lives. Our time is nearly up. I'm conscious Jesus has said a lot in a short story. Let me try and pull some threads together. I think when you see the scale of what Jesus is saying to his enemies in this parable, it is breathtaking. We began this morning with, with their answer, what gives you the right? Sorry, their question, what gives you the right? And Jesus said, look, if you were willing to listen to John the Baptist, you'd already know I'm the beloved son of God. But then with the parable, he turns the tables on them. What gives you the right to refuse the son? to try and silence or get rid of God's chosen king. And just to warn you, you will not get away with it. I'll be resurrected as the cornerstone of all God's people. That is, Jesus will define who God's people are, not these Jewish leaders, not this temple system. Jesus will throw the doors open to a global temple from every tribe and tongue and race, being built around him as the cornerstone. He said a lot in a short story. But I hope the implications for us are relatively clear. If you are someone who hasn't yet bowed the knee to Jesus, if you're holding Jesus at arm's length, perhaps willing to listen to him out of interest, willing to kind of watch his, his family, a church family, watch his people in action, well, there is a warning here. God is patient, but only for so long. He would have you come and listen to his king to turn and trust in him. And those who do, there's full forgiveness and we're built around him, uh, a cornerstone. What about the implication for those of us who are leaders, I guess especially the elders of the church here, but, but other people in Chalmers involved in leadership? Well, I think a really important implication, we are only ever tenants. Even as we work in the vineyard, we're under shepherds. We're serving under the chief shepherd, under the son. We have a, a, um, a phrase in our family, um, Jesus is the big boss. Jesus is the big boss. And you know what? All four of us need to remember that. So in church, elders and leaders have no right to push his authority to one side for us to enjoy the limelight. We have no right to, to lean to our preferred way of doing things rather than what he actually says. As a Bible teacher, I have no right to teach something different from what Jesus says in his Bible. And actually, that's true for all of us, the implications of that. We should never drift from hearing Jesus' words in the Bible, never drift just to find someone who will tell us what we want to hear. 
But my final thing to say, amongst all those warnings and cautions, there is, like in the last passage, an amazing reassurance. We saw last time at the end that that those who pray in Jesus' name have direct access to the Father. And we see here, um, uh, end of verse 9, that God will give the vineyard to others. There's this marvelous opening up of God's kingdom. And there's now a temple being built around Jesus, to which we are all welcome. All welcome to be part of God's living temple. And I know we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Isn't it a wonderful thing in lockdown, when we've been kicked out of a building temporarily, to know that we are no less the living temple of God as we come to Jesus, in his word, the cornerstone. And if you'd like to start following Jesus as your king, if you'd like to join this living temple, this people of God, please get in touch or chat to a Christian you'd know. I'd love to chat to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to listen to your beloved Son. We pray that we would each reflect on how we relate to the authority of King Jesus. And we pray when he does ruffle our feathers, when he does say things which wouldn't be what we'd think or feel or how we'd put it, we pray you'd help us to listen to him. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.